have uh, it always makes you a little nervous when I have a lot of uh, audio visual. Actually, it's more visual than audio. see uh, we're missing a few familiar faces today, but uh, part of that, of course, was uh, uh, if you attended Rory's wedding yesterday, it went from about 2.30 to, well, we left at 10.30 and it was still going. I'm happy to say that Rory and uh, Ruthie had left the scene, so they weren't there anymore, but uh, uh, it was quite a party and it was uh, a really, a really great time, so we're going to if my uh, wonderful technician here and uh, let's give Cameron a hand, okay, just for all the work he does. Thank you. interesting uh, approach to my sermon today, and that is that rather than a parable or something else, I'd actually uh, like to tell a story of something that happened in my own life. And if you actually can't see the screen, I'm going to suggest you kind of move over because there's quite a bit of video. So I don't know if you're, if you can't really see it, I encourage you to take a seat over there in, in the middle. You know, there was a famous song a few years ago, and I'm not going to sing it for you. Um... Maybe another time, but not this time, okay? But it says, do you know where you're going to? And of course, it was a beautiful song. I I know, uh, I think Diana Ross was one of the ones that sang it, and uh, there were also others. She wasn't the only one. But actually, when you look at the lyrics, the sad thing is it never really answers the question. Uh, It doesn't really show a lot of hope. It actually, actually more says, haven't you noticed that you didn't get everything that you hoped for? And... And it just ends with the same question, you know, do you know where you're going to? But just the first few lines, it says, do you know where you're going to? Do you like the things that life is showing you? Where are you going to? Do you know? Again, it's a pretty real question there, you know, do do we know? Well, this actually uh, plays well into a little story in my life, uh, and that is that... Uh, Back in 1979, my best friend, my best childhood friend and I, actually were now going to university at the same university. We're both Canadians from a little town in Beamsville, Beamsville, Ontario, Canada, but we were going to school in uh, Abilene, Texas. And uh, so uh, it was great to be uh, reunited. We'd been separated a couple of years during high school. His family moved away. Uh, Then he came back and went to the same high school I did, even though his family wasn't there. And then a couple of years in university, we were separated, but he actually then moved down just to be with me, just because of our friendship. And, uh, yeah, he really was just a, a great mate for me. So we were uh, sitting in Texas, and uh, we just had this, what we thought, brilliant idea. Let's hitchhike all the way across the United States, uh, from Texas up to the northwest corner, Washington State, where there's incredible mountains. There's two mountain chains. One of the Rocky Mountains, the Cascade Mountains. And we're like, let's go over to the mountains 
and uh, you know do some hiking. As boys, we explored the whole area we'd grown up in. We we grew up in a small town, and one of our adventures was following the creeks. There was about seven of them in our neighborhood, following them from there where they went, emptied into the big lake, Lake Ontario, all the way up to where they actually began. So it was very interesting because sometimes we walked for 14 miles to find the beginning of a creek that was emptying into the lake. And so, uh, you know, we, uh, we thought we were pretty good. We'd done a fair bit of camping in our lives and that kind of thing. So we thought we were ready for this. But I, I just want to make a point here. Uh, mistake number one. Okay, this is a map of the United States, and it shows the, the mean daily average temperatures. So that's the average temperatures. Well, we were in Texas, which is at the very bottom in the center, and Abilene is pretty much in the center, probably in one of those little red spurs, uh, which means its average daily temperature is higher than 20 degrees Celsius. That's the average through winter, summer, everything, okay? So it's pretty hot there. Now, where we're going to go is up in one of the coldest areas, the, the very northwest corner up there, that's Washington State, and you can see where some very cold area comes down in the middle of the state. That's where we were going. Um, so making a plan about how to camp there, it would be actually the first week of May, 1979. You know, there was not even a winter from our Canadian point of view in Texas, so we hadn't even gone through winter. It got kind of spring-like. The Texans called it winter, and then it moved on into summer by about February. Okay, so, you know, for the Canadians, and, and God forbid I ever spent the summer in Texas because it really is too hot. But uh, anyways, we are making these plans, but the first thing to understand is we did not consider the temperature. Well, then there's the, the next assumption was simply we just had very little mountain experience, okay? Um, We've grown up in Canada. We've done a lot of camping and hiking. Um, myself and him and some other guys had gone and even stayed for like a week on an island, and all we had to eat for the most part was the fish that we caught and that kind of thing. You know, it was, we, were, we were pretty avid campers and things. But I'll tell you what, we don't have any mountains in Ontario. And so, you know, we had a couple of cliffs. We had a little bit of experience, but, you know, we uh, thought we were experienced, but... Uh, we weren't. And then, this is our map that we're going to use to camp. Now, this is the Rand McNally Road Atlas. I actually have one. Uh, now, this is, a, this is like the A4 edition. I had an A3, so the actual thing was about that big and opened up to big pages. So you can just imagine how useful that would be in hiking in the mountains. You know, I'll show you just sort of as it gets better. So... Every state has its own page. So what kind of detail were we going to find where we were going? Well, we were headed, see where that 90 is right in the middle? Right to the right, there's Snoqualmie Pass. It's a peak, 3,000 uh, meters. We decided that we would climb it. Okay, so we're going we're to climb Snoqualmie. And uh, now remember, it's the first week of May, and that will play into the story later. Uh, so that, you know, we, we, this was the best map we had. Now, actually, um, I, I said in the beginning, this was our hike to Snow Lake. 
On the other map I had, it was a little bit bigger. See how they marked those lakes there? And the map that we had, it had another lake up where the word Snoqualmie is, and it said Snow Lake. So we thought, cool, Snow Lake. Let's, let's go to Snow Lake and see what it looks like. And, you know, we even took some fishing gear. Now, you're going to understand. You'll understand as it gets, you know, as the story goes on. So anyways, here we are. That's, that's actually the day we started the hike up the mountain. That was buying supplies. Uh, we'd been hitchhiking, and that, that nice person gave us a lift. Uh, so we, uh, you know, we were just getting some supplies, and then they were going to drop us off on the 90, and we were getting off right on the interstate, which you're not supposed to do, and just climb straight up the mountain. So that's what we are going to do. We each had backpacks that had 60 pounds worth of food and stuff in it. We had a spring tent. It wasn't a winter tent. We actually didn't even have coats. We had thin thermal vests, and we had a sweater each. Hey, we're Canadians. What can I say? We, I did have some hiking boots, as you can see, uh, probably worth about $10. But uh, anyways... Uh, I did have a sleeping bag. It's tucked in there. There's a little ground sheet, and uh, Jim had the tent on his. And so we were all set. Uh, we really thought we were ready for this. So I want to show you uh, just a little video to kind of show you where we are going, okay? And thanks to uh, Google Earth, I'm going to give you a little demo. We're going to just kind of home into this part of the United States, give you an idea where we're going. And I've put a few markers in there. One's called beginning of the hike. The other is the jump over point. And then there over there is Snow Lake. That's where we were going. And you can see my that little hand moving. That's uh, you can, it's just a little dot. That's the path we took up to the top. And there, yes, we've arrived. Now, I'm going to zoom in a little just to give you another idea. And then coming in. Okay, so we're coming up to the jump over point. And I'll explain why I'm calling it the jump over point in just a second. So we're zooming in. Okay, that's where we're going. Okay. Now, i got to tell you something. If you look at the data down here, these are photographs taken in early September. It was a rather tough winter in Washington State this year, and we weren't aware of that. We didn't actually even read any kind of weather report to see where we were going, because we just made up our mind. Snow Lake, we're going to fish at Snow Lake. So... We had climbed up the south face of the mountain. As you can see, the south face. It means that the sunlight is hitting the south face. And actually what we saw, there was still a lot of snow on the south face. So we came to this, the, you know, we, we went up the hill to like find our way uh, through the snow and through the rocks and climbing. And of course, it was getting kind of cold. And it's good that the sun was, it was a very sunny day, so it was quite warm in the sun. But we got up to this ridge. It took us four hours to get there. And looking down on the other side, this is what we saw. I just got this picture off the Internet. But that's what we were looking at. 
Okay? So, uh, we weren't really ready for this, okay? Now, wiser people would have turned back and said, what are we doing? You know, what, what are, but, but we made up our minds. I don't know, people that know me know I can be a little stubborn occasionally. So I'm thinking, okay, we're going to go for this. But we were on a ridge that was 15 feet high till it went to the snow. It was a cliff. We were looking over this ridge, and we are thinking to ourselves, you know, it looks like there's enough snow that we can jump over into the ridge. And I get the mobs here who are professionals, and uh, I know that, uh, hey, I was 21 years old, and I've uh, learned a few lessons since then. But anyway, um, I'm standing on the ridge, and I'm th- you know, we're wearing our 60-pound packs, and it's looking like a lot of snow. We're thinking, That's, that, you know, we, we can make this, so we... We both jump at the same time over the edge and disappeared into the snow. I mean, didn't quite disappear. I think we we're up to our armpits like this. Okay, so we're like this, looking at each other. We're not touching the ground. There's, it's just snow, okay? And we're realizing something. I am, I'm on snow with a backpack that weighs 60 pounds. How am I going to get out of this hole? And how am I ever going to walk? Now, I need to tell you one other thing. We were still in our shorts. <laughs> and this story only gets worse, right? Does it? Okay, so we've now jumped over the hill. We're in our shorts. We're up to our elbows. Now, I'm talking to Jim, and I'm going, Jim, man, I got an idea, okay? Let's take off our packs. We'll throw them up on the snow. And we'll get your ground sheet, and we'll make a sled. We'll wrap them up. It was 2,000 feet down to the forest line. And I said, let's just let it go. We're just going to, like, let our packs go. So, um, anyways, it seemed like a good idea, as most of the things I was doing at this time did. Okay, so loaded up the packs onto this thing, tied it up, made a nice little sled. It was kind of streamlined. It actually went straight where we pointed it. Send it down. I'm thinking it hit about 90 miles an hour. And right before it hit the woods, there must have been a rock or something because it jumped up in the air and went into the trees. And so all of our stuff was just hanging in these fir trees 2,000 feet away. And uh, then we began our walk down. Now, my friend Jim, we are still good friends. Five years ago, he gave me this. This is the journal that we kept in 1979 uh, about what happened on our trip. Well, anyways, I just thought I'd read the next little bit out of our journal. We called this the Dale Fleming Expedition. And uh, I actually, I I was writing it day by day, though uh, I missed a couple of days when we were under duress in the mountains, and only when we got out again did I bring it up to date. So, uh, you know, I wrote Friday. Well, this, I won't worry about that. That's just our plan uh, to get out of Texas, and that's how we got across all the way up to Washington State. Not bad. Hitchhiking and uh, getting various rides with people. We actually got to, uh, to our destination about 2,000 miles in two days. It wasn't too bad. So on Sunday... We uh, went to church in Bellevue. I'm just going to start over the middle of that other page. We had lunch at Pat. That was a, a friend of ours from our university and her father. 
And this guy was eccentric. He, he had an elevator in his living room. He moved the, the library, and there was an elevator door, and we went down into a vault where he had a collection of Disney toys from 1920 and 1930. So anyways, we got to take a look at all that stuff. And so then, oh, actually, we, we didn't hitchhike. Pat took us to Snoqualmie Pass, and we started backpacking. Those backpacks weighed over 60 pounds. It took about four hours to get to the top, and then we made a dangerous mistake. We stopped, decided to go down the other side. The snow was over 10 feet deep, and Jim and I were sinking up to our knees, uh, and sometimes up to our waist in the snow. The sun was setting, and we still had about 2,000 feet to go. Our packs were making us sink, so we took them off, made a sled out of Jim's poncho, and went as quickly as we could. We had a few spills and got stuck a few times, but we finally made it to the main tree line of the forest and made our camp on an island in the middle of a converging mountain stream. There are two converging mountain streams. Jim's feet were almost frostbitten, and he was, he was a while before his toes moved much. He was really tired, so he slept by the fire for an hour and a half while I kept it going. Then we ate some wieners, uh, pack, uh, put up the tent, and went to sleep. Okay. Now, i got to tell you what really happened. Jim went unconscious. Jim got hypothermia. And so here's my best friend. There we are, grade four, fourth year. That's me, that's Jim. A little close-up so you see us. Okay, there we were, okay. This kid, I went to his fifth birthday party and every birthday party after. We were friends all our lives. He is, un he will not wake up. I am shaking him, I'm yelling his name. Nothing's changing. And for an hour and a half, I sat there, I built a fire, I put him beside it, I just laid him beside it on, on one of the uh, ma uh, mats we had, and I just prayed to God for an hour and a half that he would wake up. And to be honest, I was just about giving up, when suddenly goes, hey, I'm hungry! And I was like, you know, just scared me out of my mind. But, but there was Jim. So, anyway, again, th this is the thing that we went down. And, uh, of course, it was covered in snow. We didn't see any rocks on this side. Uh, we made our way down to the forest line, like I was saying, and, uh, you know, that's where it continued. So, Jim and I never talked about it. Jim and I never talked about the fact that he was unconscious for, a, for an hour and a half till five years ago when he gave me this book. And he goes, you know, I was looking through this stuff over, over the years since, you know, we did that trip, and it occurs to me, it was I unconscious? And, you know, we had this talk, you know, and his wife gave me a big hug and said, thank you, you know, whatever. But I was sitting there just remembering, okay, that it was such a good plan. But as you can see, uh, it didn't execute so well, okay? So, you know, moving on, what happened the next day? Monday, we decided it wouldn't be, it would be impossible for us to retrace our steps, and that was the truth. There was no way we were going back the way we came. So we decided to hike around the base, hoping that the valley we were in the first would run into the one we were in now. We ate breakfast and started down the valley. This valley went much deeper than the one that we'd been in, and three-quarters of the way down, we found a trail going in the direction we wanted to, and we followed it. After about an hour, we stopped at a fork, and after lunch, followed the path, and, and there was a sign that said, Snow Lake, four miles, Snoqualmie Pass, nine and a half miles. Now, that's where we had started. We'd started at Snoqualmie Pass, but this trail was saying 
The lake's four miles, and then five and a half miles past the lake, you'll get out again. So we were pretty encouraged. We thought we'd uh, follow that. We climbed for about, well, all afternoon. At about four o'clock, the path entered the snow line again, and we lost it. The path had been zigzagging, so we started to go straight up the snow. But by 6 p.m., we still hadn't found a trace of the path, and the top was still out of view. So we moved horizontally from the snow line back into the forest, and we camped again. We descended below the snow line, made our second camp on the trail we had previously followed. This camp was interesting because the trail was only about five feet wide, and the tent was hanging down uh, the incline slightly. And then uh, for safety's sake, we put up the tent with a tree on the cliff side so we wouldn't roll too far in the middle of the night. And, you know, that, I just, that's all the details. Anyways, that, that's the sign. That's actually the very sign we saw. I found that on the Internet. But anyways, build a fire, everything. You know, from the moment we went over that hill, the only thing we could think about over that cliff was getting out. That was the only thing. We didn't care about Snow Lake anymore. We weren't thinking about fishing anymore. I mean, we are thinking about, we got to get out of here. And, uh, you know, so that was the plan. You know, going a little further, uh, and then Jim wrote the rest of this. I believe we wrote it once we got out again, so he took over. We woke up, enjoyed oatmeal breakfast. Jim really likes food, so there's lots of mentions of food with Jim. Uh, we broke camp, returned to the area where we lost the trail on Monday, found the trail again. In five minutes, lost it again. Forty-five minutes later, we found the trail. Walked along the edge of a cliff, dangerous but fun. No more trail, and uh, just two to three feet of snow. We had to straight up. By early afternoon, we reached the top of the ridge. Six feet of snow and a frozen lake greeted the weary hikers. We realized why they call it Snow Lake. It had about 12 feet of snow on it. I don't think I don't know if the snow ever leaves Snow Lake. So, anyways, uh, yeah, we saw Snow Lake. But, um, anyways, um, it's interesting. It says he saw, wrote down that we found Yosemite's watch. You know, what, what saved us? We lost the trail in the snow. We could not find the way out of the valley. But we actually found a man's footprints. And what happens is, once a week, a, a park ranger walks 50 miles through this area looking for stupid young people. I mean, that's his whole purpose, right? He's just looking for the stupid young people who've probably gone out and don't know what they're doing. Now, we never met the guy, but we called him Yosemite. And uh, the funny thing is, after following his trail, his watch strap had broken, and we found his watch. And Jim tells me he still has it. A little sentimental there. But anyways, so here, here's the thing. We, followed, we were lost completely. We didn't know where we were going. And obviously, we were trying all sorts of directions. But it was finding a living person's footprints made all the difference. And see, I think you can kind of, kind of get where I'm going here with this illustration, right? Um, you know, we built a fire. We made our way out. I'm not going to bore you with the rest of the story. Basically, we camped by the lake that night, walked the five miles out. And Jim and I never went on a mountain hike again. Okay. <laughs> Uh, you know, you got to see how crazy this is. We climbed down a 200-foot cliff with no ropes. I don't even want to go into this, okay? Um, it's just sad. Okay. But, but here's, here's what I want to talk about. I just have two questions. Now, what map are you following? Now, do you know where you're going? 
Do we know where we're going? Do we know what's at the end of our lives? And, and do we know the path that we're taking? You know, here's uh, two maps. I'll have another one of these. My wife and I uh, like going on walks around Birmingham, and I bought this a few years ago. It's actually got the walking trails and things around Birmingham. That little map on the side, that's just a little piece just uh, northwest, northeast of Sutton Crowfield. It's about uh, two miles from Sutton Crowfield Center. There's the map that we were trying to hike with. And then here's a surveyor's map, you know, an orientation map. It's got actually every five, the difference of five meters is marked by a line, a contour line. So you can actually tell where, where the hills are steep, where they're, where they're gentle. You can see where you're going. Every kind of trail is marked on there from highway down to walking path. You know, if walking path is open for public path, then that will be marked on. If it's a private path, that's marked on. You know, all that kind of details, it's all there. It's got the ruins of ancient buildings. It's got all the interesting things to see. Basically, if you have one of those maps, you're in good shape. And now today you could add a GPS onto that and do pretty golden. In fact, even now they've got these maps on the GPS and it's all on one and you just it shows you exactly where you are. Okay, so we're pretty spoiled these days. But you know what map are we following? I'm going to read a, a passage. It's Psalm 119. We'll start in verse 105. Psalm 119. It says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. I've taken an oath and confirmed it that I will follow your righteous laws. I've suffered much. Preserve my life, O Lord, according to your word. Accept, O Lord, the willing praise of my mouth and teach me your laws. Though I constantly take my life in in my own hands, actually, should say, I will not forget your law. It's, it's interesting. It says this, I take my life in my own hands. Okay? The wicked have set a snare for me, but I have not strayed from your precepts. Your statutes are my heritage forever. They are the joy of my heart. My heart is set on keeping your decrees to the very ends. You know, this is a great description of God's Word. It's a lamp to our feet. It's a light to our path. God has given us His Word so we know the way. We know what's right. We know what's wrong. And we can make the right decisions. What truth are we following? Bill Carnegie, How to Win Friends and Influence People. You know, it's author of How to Stop Worrying and Start Living. There's a little print there. How to Survive Middle School. How to Change the World. So, social Entrepreneurs. How to Churn Butter for Dummies. I mean, I decided to put that up there. I mean, you, know, you can go on the Internet and find just about advice for anything. But really, where are we getting our knowledge about how to build our lives? You know, by the time I was 25, and that's when I was baptized as a disciple of Jesus, by the time I was 25, I'd had a dozen girlfriends. And if you'd asked me, I, you would have said, you know, Andy, do you know something about women? I would have said, sure, sure. I've had a dozen girlfriends. Well, it was quite interesting because one of my first mentors as I was a young Christian we were talking about this very thing, and he said, so have you had girlfriends? And I said, yeah, I've had a few. You know, and I'm kind of thinking, yeah, I know a little bit here. And he says, well, how many girlfriends do you think you had? And I said, well, 12 probably. 
And he goes, you think you know something about women? I said, yeah, something. And he goes, uh, but I was actually being modest in my mind. And, uh, and he goes, so do you have a girlfriend right now? And I said, well, no. And they said, did it occur to you that you maybe don't know anything? Well, there's a point. You know, if I knew so much, why was I alone? If I'd become such an expert in this field, why was I by myself? And uh, I appreciate the question. It made me think a little bit. Uh, you know, and but, but how, what are we counting on? You know, what, what, where does our knowledge come from about how to build a relationship that will last? I have another little object here. This is the wedding program from yesterday's wedding. And I'll tell you what, um, it was a very wonderful crowd of people yesterday, and peop- uh, from a whole range of people who didn't believe anything about God or religion in any way, to some very, very religious people. And so, you know, we, we had an opportunity to really celebrate our brother and sister, uh, Ruthie, Ruthie and Rory, who, you know, which I mentioned in the sermon, had been absolutely pure, had not had any kind of physical contact, and that actually were waiting till they were married to engage in a physical relationship, a sexual relationship. And that's the way that God intended it, because sex was meant to bring two people together. And people think that, well, if I just if I have sex with somebody else, that will bring us closer. But if it's not based on a covenant of love and a commitment, in the end it actually separates and makes people feel bitter and resentful as if they've given something away. You see, truly, God has a plan, and that's what we looked a little bit. It was a a little sermonette, but we talked about what is God's plan for marriage? How does it work? But you know what's so awesome? Even though not everyone agreed with it, there was a light in so many people's eyes because there's something right about one man and one woman living together for their whole lives. Now, any of us have been around for a while know this is more difficult than it sounds. It's pretty easy to do a wedding. It's pretty hard to stay committed for your whole life to the same person. And uh, in fact, I would say, uh, for most of us, it requires divine intervention for it really to be a reality. But see, the question is, how are we going to build our lives? Is it going to be just on human wisdom, or is it really going to be on God's Word? And see, God's Word gives us the instruction. It gives us the foundation. And I'm not saying it's easy. I'm just simply saying the one who made us knows better how we should live than anyone else does. You know, you want to read the user's manual written by the one who made the item. And that's what the Bible is. And here are two other scriptures that talk about the power of God's Word. All scriptures God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. This is almost Paul's last written words. This was his last letter, 2 Timothy. He wrote 12 letters. This is his last one, but he says this scripture, this writing that's inspired by God, it has a purpose in your life to actually guide you and train you just like a parent would, to help you become what God intended for you to become. 
And then it says in Hebrews 4, 12, 13, For the Word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. You know, this thing we're holding, this Bible, actually can show you what's going on in your heart. You know, not only do we ask the question, do I know where I'm going to, but do I know what I'm thinking about? Do I understand why I do what I do? Do I really get it? The Word of God actually will give us insight into who we are. You know, it's compared to a double-edged sword, because back in the first century, the people who actually really saw what was going on inside a human body were the people that were swinging this two-edged sword. You know, there were some doctors that were doing autopsies and that kind of thing. But in general practice, the guys who fought the battles were the ones that saw inside. They could see what was really going on inside. And it penetrates, the Word of God penetrates to actually even show the difference between our, our thoughts and our attitudes. It, it divides joint and marrow. When you think about that, a bone has the marrow where the life is, but the joint is where the structure is. And so even soul and spirit is the same idea. The soul is sort of your character and person. The spirit is your life force. And your thoughts and attitudes, thoughts are sort of the structure of how you think, but your attitudes are what give them life. They're the energy inside of them. There's a dividing that, that God's Word can actually show us why we feel the way we feel. Why we think the way we think. Isn't that awesome? But see, just so we understand, so, so sometimes we get pretty excited about this. Wow, I'm holding God's Word. This wisdom and knowledge that can come into me. Jesus gave a little warning to the Jewish religious people of His day. He said, you diligently study the Scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. It's very important. Knowledge doesn't save you. Oh, I've got some insight about how, how this works. That's not what saves you. Jesus saves you. The Son of God is the one who saves us. It's His sacrifice on the cross that gives us forgiveness of sins. It isn't knowledge. Now, without that knowledge, you won't know what to receive. You won't know what to accept. You, you can't believe the gospel unless you hear the gospel, the good news about Jesus. Knowledge doesn't save, Jesus does. And actually, that leads us to our second question. You know where you're going to, so, so who's your guide? Who are you following? Now, let's look at these uh, two Proverbs here. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 to 6. It says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make your path straight. You know, if you had to choose between... Just, just look and see a person beside you. Just, just, get, just get in your mind one other person in the room here. Just anybody. Okay. Now, if you had the choice of following their opinion for your life or God's, which one would you choose? If you would follow God's, put up your hand. 
Okay, okay, that's what I thought. But you know, this is actually a little bit of an ego test. Because when we think about the person beside us, we go, of course I'd follow God. Now my question, will you, what about following yourself? Or following God? Making that choice, is it as clear? Let's be honest. Is it really as clear as it was looking at your neighbor? And it says in Proverbs 16.25, There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to death. I could call that my plan to go to Snow Lake. Honestly, it's just a miracle of Jesus that I'm standing here today. Uh, I'm, I'm grateful to God for that. Uh, there's a way that seems right to me. Boy, I really believed I knew what I was doing. You know, you can be as convinced as you want to be. That doesn't make you right. Sometimes we're impressed by people because they're so confident. But the question is, what is their confidence in? Because some people are just, to be honest, a little narcissistic. They really just think, I'm right. And I don't know what you believe, but you're wrong. I'm right. And see, we all should have a little healthy doubt here. Now, now, if you've always been right and never made a wrong judgment or decision, then don't pay any attention to what I'm saying. But if you've just made one mistake, then it's time to ask, okay, who do I really trust? Am I trusting myself or am I trusting God? You know, the human condition is kind of interesting. Matthew 6.24 has a very interesting statement and assumption. It says, No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. In, in the Greek text, the word is mammon, which actually is this word for material things. And in the first century, Jews didn't worship idols, but they understood that material things had become the new idol. And so this word mammon actually was used to describe when material things become like a god to you. You can't serve both God and material things, is really what he's saying. But you know what's interesting? No one can serve two masters either. You know, there's not a third option here. Oh, I'm not going to serve any master. Because that means I'm simply going to do what I want to do. Now, who am I serving? You know, the funniest thing about human beings, this is part of the human condition. Whether you like it or not, we are servants because we d we're not in control. We're not in control of our lives. Look at Philippians 2, 5 to 8. It says, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now, Jesus was equal with God. He was omniscient, means he knew everything. He was omnipotent, means he had all power. 
He was omnipresent. He was everywhere. And he gave up all of those three qualities to become a human being. Isn't that amazing? And what it says here, this is the NIV version, it's being a little bit polite. It says taking the very nature of a servant, but actually in the Greek it's the word doulos, it's the word slave. He took actually the nature of a slave being made in human likeness. See, not only are we servants because we don't have the power to be the masters of our own lives. In fact, the way we are because of our routine and patterns and habits and just the way our minds work, we become enslaved to the things we serve. So Jesus took the very nature of a slave being made in human likeness. You see, what did Jesus do in this human servant-slave form? Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. See, Jesus became just like us, but his only way out was to become obedient to his Father 100%, even though it led to his death. Let's just read this together. I didn't have enough space on a slide to put it. Hebrews chapter 2. Because the book of Hebrews really describes the humanity of Jesus. So let's just look at this together. Hebrews 2, we'll pick it up in verse 5. It says, It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come about which we are speaking, but there is a place where someone has testified somewhere in Scripture. What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. In putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to him, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. In bringing, and this is verse 10 that's quoted up there, in bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God for whom and through whom everything exists should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them his brothers. Skipping down to verse 14. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason he had, had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he suffered, he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. What an amazing God we have. God became flesh so he could actually show us the way back to him. The way to live that pleases him. And so Jesus came to be our guide. He came to show us the way. And if you want to be where he is, which is in heaven with God, you simply need to follow him. It is that simple. Look at Hebrews 5, 7-9. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, 
He offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. See, we've been given a guide. It's great to have the guide book, but we actually have a guide. Jesus knows what it's like to live in flesh like ours. He's felt our weakness. He's felt our limitations. You know, he's been tired just from a day's work. He was sick. He felt pain. He, he was hungry. He experienced life. He had best friends who deserted him. He had family members who didn't believe in his mission. Jesus knows exactly what it's like to be us. And He is our advocate. He is our guide. He's our connection to God. Our last scripture. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God, right hand of the throne of God. Consider Him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You know, Jim and I named, it was in our notes, we named that valley the Valley of Depression. It took us three days to get out of it. It took us exactly five seconds to jump into it. And it took us three days to get out of it. And to be honest, there were some moments as we were trekking through that snow, we were thinking to ourselves, are we ever going to get out? Will we survive this? Did we just jump into a valley that actually doesn't enter any, there's no escape from? And it was great to see that sign and find that trail, but then we lost it. But it was a living guide who actually helped us on our way. You know, I don't know who Yosemite is, but thank you, God, for Yosemite. Thank you for that man who made that journey. And he'll never know what he did for two young Crazy, irresponsible, whatever. Uh, guys who just thought they knew what they were doing. But see, God has given us something better than simply footprints in the snow. God has given us His Son. And by following Him, we will in fact receive eternal life. It is the only way. Let's bow in prayer as the worship team comes up and takes their place. Father and God, we are so just grateful for the chance to be together today. Thank you, Father, for... Uh, I do thank you, Father, for sparing my life all those years ago. Uh, Father, just thank you for the way that you work. And thank you that we can learn from our experience. I pray... Uh, I know I've become a, a better hiker and camper since then. But, Father, uh, I pray about our spiritual lives. It's, it's just so important that we learn to live and walk as Jesus did. And Father, thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for the gospels that really show us uh, what it was like for him to interact with other people and, and the things that he talked, the things that concerned him. We see his priorities. We see his love for people. And I pray, Father, that we can really imitate that. But Father, we also see a great humility in Jesus. That he wasn't about seeking his own will, but he really was about fulfilling your will, which has been the greatest blessing possible in our lives. Father, I pray that we really leave today thinking about who are we trusting in? What is the source of truth that we are building our lives on? 
And Father, what people in this world, who are we modeling ourselves after? Who do we want to be like? And I pray, Father, that we can really wrestle with what your word presents us with, that it, in fact, is the unchangeable truth, and that also your Son is the only way to be with you. Father, we thank you for the clarity of Scripture. We thank you for the offer of grace. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.